Today's chapter is Perik Shiva Asar, the Hilchos Machalos Asuros, the 17th and final chapter of the laws concerning forbidden foods. Halacha Aleph, paragraph 1. Kedera Shulcheres, Shinizbashal Bab Basar Nevela, O Basar Shkotzim Uramasim, Lo Yavashal Bab Basar Shkuta Baosa Hayom. A pot made out of earthenware that was used for the cooking of either Nevela meat, that's meat that was not killed through Shkita, or the meat of creeping and abominable things, one should not use that same pot to cook kosher slaughtered meat during the same day. If he did cook meat in it, any kind of meat, then it would be forbidden because it's the same kind and you can't tell whether it has imparted a taste or not because they both taste the same. But if you cooked some other kind of food, then we depend. It depends on whether it imparted a flavor or not. Halacha base, paragraph two. However, the Torah only prohibited if it was a pot that was cooked that same day, with a for, that in which the forbidden substance was cooked that same day. And the reason is because the taste of the fat had not yet become defected. The fat, that is the fat, the forbidden fat that has been absorbed by the pot. However, rabbinically, no one should ever use that pot in which to cook kosher food, even though it's more than one day old. Therefore, one should not purchase pottery, old pottery from non-Jews that was used for cooking hot stuff, for example, pots and saucers and the like. No one should ever use those, buy them from a non-Jew, even though they might, and they certainly are, more than one day old, because of this rabbinical prohibition. And this is true, even if this pottery was coated with lead. However, the Ramam continues, If one did purchase these, uh, this pottery, and he cooked from the second day and onward, then the food that was cooked in it is permissible. One is not allowed to use it, but if it was used, the food is permissible. Halacha Gimel, paragraph 3. If one purchases the tableware from an Anjou, tableware either of metal or glass, which has never been used, it must be immersed in the mikvah, in an immersion pool, and then afterwards it could be used for eating and drinking. Now utensils which have been used for cold substances, such as cups, flasks, and ladles, pitchers, they should first be rinsed and then immersed in the mikvah. Subsequently they are permitted. Now, utensils which have been used for hot food, such as kettles, boilers, and water heaters, must be scalded first and immersed in a mikvah, and only then are they permitted. Now, utensils which have been used over an open fire, such as spits and gratings, they must be made white-hot in a fire until the crust peels off, and then they are immersed and are subsequently permitted. 
Alakadal, paragraph four. Kates and Magilom, how does one scald the pot that was used for cooking non kosher foods? Nosen Yorok Tanalatoch Yorogdolo, Mamala Lehamayi Machigatsufa Walaktano Martiha Yafa Yafa. A small kettle is placed inside a large kettle, which is filled with water, so that it covers the small one and is then brought to full boil. If the vessel to be scalded is large, you can't put it into another vessel, one should make a lip of dough or clay around its rim, fill it with water above the rim, and bring it to a boil. You want every part of the utensil to be touched by this hot water, and if you don't have this rim, it won't reach the top. However, in all of these cases, if the vessels are used before scalding, rinsing, or bringing it to a white heat, as the case may be, or before immersing it in a mikveh, they are nevertheless permitted, since the fat absorbed in them imparts a defective flavor, as we have just explained. It's only rabbinically that we require to kosher it this way. Now this immersion in the mikvah that was referred to earlier that we have to take the utensils used for a meal that was purchased from a non-Jew and only then could you use these utensils for eating and drinking has nothing to do with the laws of purity and impurity that are based on the Torah. They are merely based on rabbinic authority. The rabbis required this immersion. Now, there is some controversy as to whether the Rambam actually means that the law of immersion, immersing non-Jewish utensils into a mikveh is rabbinical. Some say that the Rambam actually means that it's biblical, but when the Rambam says it's rabbinical, he means that it was passed down, this interpretation of the Torah was passed down from one generation of rabbis to the next, and that the Rambam also refers to as rabbinical, even though it's really biblical in its status and in its weight and importance. The Rambam goes on to say, Veremez law, there's a hint in the Torah to this requirement of immersing non-Jewish utensils in a mikvah. In the book of Numbers it says that anything that may, may abide the fire, you shall make go through the fire, and it shall, shall be clean. What does that refer to? It was the tradition that was passed down by the sages that explains that this verse refers only to the cleansing of vessels from non-Jewish cooking and not from impurity, since no impurity can be removed by fire. The Raman continues that all those who are impure they get rid of their impurity through immersion in a mikvah. The impurity contracted by coming in contact with the dead, that is removed through the different rituals that include sprinkling in addition to immersion in a mikvah, but there is no fire at all used in any of those purification processes. The only reason for the fire here is with respect to removing the forbidden substances that are in the utensils cooked by non-Jews. Now, since the Torah says, and it shall be clean, 
The sages reason that this Torah meant to imply an additional act of cleansing, besides the cleansing to take the forbidden substance out of the pots, which we referred to earlier, it also includes another type of cleansing, that is immersion. After it passes through the fire, which frees the vessel from the effects of the forbidden cooking. Paragraph 6. This requirement of immersion was only applied to metal utensils used in the meal that are purchased from non-Jews. If someone borrows utensils from a non-Jew, or a non-Jew leaves with you as a pledge for his loan, metal utensils, all you have to do is kosher it by either rinsing it if it's cold or boiling it or getting it white hot, but you don't have to immerse it. You have to remove the forbidden substance because the non-Jew used it, but it doesn't require immersion. Likewise, earthenware, Utensils, you don't have to immerse in the mikveh, but if it was glazed with lead, it's regarded as metal utensils, as a metal utensil, and it does require immersion. Paragraph 7. A person purchases a knife from an anju, if one purchases a knife from an anju, all you have to do is bring it to a white heat, or polish it on a suitable grindstone. And if it was a very good knife and was free from any nicks in it, it's enough if you stick it into the ground forcefully ten times, then you can eat, use it for cold food. Now, if it had nicks in it, or if it was a good knife without the nicks, but you want to use it for hot food, or to use it for shechita, for slaughtering an animal, malabna. He must bring it to a white heat or polish the whole of it. If he slaughtered with this knife before he had cleansed it, then he must rinse the place of shechita where he made the incision, and it is preferable if he would even peel off the outer layer of flesh where this knife had come in contact with the flesh. Paragraph 8. One should not perform shechita with a knife that was used in slaughtering a trefa animal, unless he rinses it first, even in cold water, or wipes it with a rag. There are other forbidden foods that were forbidden by our sages, even though they have no foundation in the Torah. For example, the Rambam says, The rabbis made the decrees in order to keep the Jews away from non-Jews so that they did not mingle with them and it should not lead to any type of intermarriage. These are the rabbinical prohibitions that were designed for that purpose. One may not drink with a non-Jew, even in a place where there is no danger of libation wine, forbidden wine. They also lechel pitam or bishulehem. You can't eat their bread or anything cooked by them. Even in a place where there is no danger of any forbidden foods that are absorbed in their, their utensils, even if it's a new utensil, you cannot eat anything they cooked or baked.
Halacha Yud, paragraph 10. The Rambam now continues to explain. Ketzad, what does this all mean? One should not drink at a party, at a gathering, a banquet with non-Jews, even though the wine is cooked, in which case it is not forbidden wine. As we learned before, that cooked wine does not have prohibition of forbidden wine. Or, even if the person, the Jew, is draining out of his own utensil, so there's no question of it being forbidden in that regard, as non-kosher wine, nevertheless, just being at the banquet, drinking with a non-Jew is forbidden. However, if the majority of the people at the banquet are Jews, it is permissible. One should not even drink the beer that is made by non-Jews, made out of dates and figs and the like. They are also forbidden. However, this prohibition is only in the place where it's sold. But if he brings the beer home and drinks it there, it is permissible, because the main reason for this for this rabbinical decree is that we don't want the Jew to feast together with the non-Jew, but if he brings it home, it would be all right. Halacha Yidalaf, paragraph 11. Wine made out of apples or pomegranates and the like, one may drink it any place. Because it's such an infrequent type of a situation that the rabbis did not impose their rabbinical decree upon this. However, wine made out of raisins, raisin wine, is just like any other wine, and it could be poured for libations, and therefore it would be forbidden. Halacha Yibetz, paragraph 12. Even though it is forbidden for us to eat non-Jewish bread, nevertheless there are places where they are lenient in this matter, and they buy bread baked by non-Jewish bakers, where there are no Jewish bakers, such as in the field, because it is a time of great difficulty. However, private bread, baked by a private individual householder, that is non-Jewish, there is no one who is lenient in this matter. Because the main reason for this prohibition is because of the danger of intermarriage, and if you'll eat bread baked by a private non-Jewish person, you might come and feast with them. Paragraph 13. If a non-Jew turns on an oven and a Jewish person bakes the bread in it, or if the Jew turns on the oven and the non-Jew bakes in it, or if the non-Jew both turns on the oven and bakes the bread, but the Jew comes along later and stirs the fire a little, or damps it, in all of these cases, since the Jew has participated in the process of baking of the bread, it is permissible. And even if the Jew has done nothing more than just putting one piece of wood into the fire, he has thereby rendered, permitted all the bread in the oven, since the purpose of this rule is merely to make clear that bread that is entirely baked by non-Jews is forbidden. And the fact that we require him of him to do this, this little gesture of throwing some wood into the oven, that alone is enough to demonstrate that there is some problem with this type of bread. 
If a non-Jew boils wine, milk, honey, quinces, or any similar food which is usually eaten raw for a Jew, it is permissible. The rabbis only impose their decree on something that cannot be eaten raw, for example, meat, uh, unsalted fish, eggs, and vegetables. If a non-Jew has cooked these foods from the beginning until the end of the, of the procedure of cooking, and the Jew did not participate at all, they are forbidden because of the prohibition of non-Jewish cooking. Paragraph 15. When does the foregoing apply? That is only such foods which might be served at the royal table that is eaten together with bread, such as meat, eggs, fish, and the like. In the case of food which is not served at a royal bank- banquet that would be eaten with the bread at this royal table, such as lupines, it is permitted if cooked by an Anjou, even though it is not eaten raw. And the same applies in all similar s- instances. And the Ramam explains the reason for it. For the reason that this decree was made is to prevent intermarriage so that a non-Jew should not invite a Jew to dine with him. And as a rule, a person does not invite his friend to dine with him unless the food that he serves consists of delicacies that might be served at the royal table that we eat with bread. Otherwise, it's not something that you would want to invite a friend over, a formal banquet or something like that, there's no danger that it might lead to intermarriage. Paragraph 16. Now, small fish that were salted by a Jew or a non-Jew are regarded as partially cooked. Therefore, if a non-Jew roasts these fish after a Jew had salted them, they are permitted. As long as a Jew cooks it at the beginning of its cooking process or at the end, it is permissible. For the same reason, if a non-Jew leaves meat or a pot over the fire, and a Jew then turns the meat or stirs the contents of the pot, or if the Jew leaves it over the fire and the non-Jew does the rest, in either case the food is permitted. Fish that was salted, or fruits that was smoke cured by an Anjou until they are fit for consumption, are permitted. And the reason for this is, Because in regard to this rabbinical prohibition, something salted is not regarded as something being cooked, and something smoked is also not considered to be Cooked. Similarly, a non-Jew who parches corn, grain, one is allowed to eat that grain, and it was not forbidden by the rabbis, seeing that one does not invite a friend to dine on parched grain. Paragraph 18.
If a non-Jew cooks peas, beans, lentils, and the like, and the purpose of cooking them is to subsequently sell them, they are forbidden. Now, the reason why they're forbidden, the Rambam explains, on one count they're forbidden because it is non-Jewish cooking, and thus such localities where these foods are served at the royal table as a side dish. But these foods are also forbidden everywhere on account of forbidden non-Jewish utensils, since they might have been cooked with meat, or in a pot in which meat had been cooked. And likewise, the Rambam continues, Spongy cakes fried by non-Jews in oil are also forbidden because of non-Jewish utensils that are forbidden. Halacha Yutes, paragraph 19. If a non-Jew cooks, but his intention was not to cook, it is permitted, Ketzad. What does that mean? For example, should a non-Jew set fire to a meadow in order to burn off the grass, and should locusts in the grass be thereby roasted, they are permitted, even in a locality where they are served at the royal table as a side dish. Likewise, if he singes an animal's head in order to remove the hair, it is allowed to eat of the dangling flesh or of the ear tips which are roasted in the course of his singeing, because his intention was not to cook. Halacha Yutes, paragraph, Halacha Chaf, rather, paragraph 20. If a non-Jew cooks figs, then it depends. If they were sweet prior to cooking, they are permitted. But if they were, were bitter and became sweet through the cooking, they are forbidden. If the figs were bittersweet, they are likewise forbidden because the cooking is just like any other case of cooking where it makes the food edible and pa- palatable. Paragraph 21. If one roasts lentils and kneads them, whether with water or whether with vinegar, and when putting it in vinegar, it's like cooking it. It is forbidden. But if you take roasted wheat or barley and knead it with water, it is permissible. Now, the reason that it is permissible, it is forbidden even when it was done with water, in the case of lentils, because there's a danger that if people would use it when it was kneaded with water, they also might permit it when it was made with vinegar. However, wheat and barley is not subject to this because the custom is never to do it with vinegar. It is only kneaded with water. Paragraph 22. Oil of non-Jews is permissible. Now, whoever prohibits it is guilty of a very serious sin because he is thereby rebelling against the decision of Rabbi Yehuda, the prince's court, which declared it permitted. And the Rambam continues. Now, this is true even if the oil is boiled. It is still permitted. Because oil cannot be forbidden either on account of non-Jewish cooking since it may be consumed raw or because of the forbidden non-Jewish utensils 
because the meat spoils the oil and imparts an unpleasant odor to it. Paragraph 23. Same thing would apply to non-Jewish honey, which is boiled, and sweet meats are made with it. It is permitted for the same reason. Paragraph 24. If a promise of dates belonging to a non-Jew is stewed, whether in a large or a small vessel, it is permitted, since stewing impairs its flavor. Similarly, pickled vegetables that are usually prepared without vinegar or wine, or pickled olives or locusts taken directly from the storehouse are permitted. On the other hand, Locusts and pickles over which wine is poured are forbidden. They are likewise forbidden if vinegar or even fermented beer is poured over them. Paragraph 25. Why is it that the rabbis forbidden, prohibited fermented non-Jewish beer? And the answer is... And the reason is because the non-Jews put wine lees into, into it, into the beer. And for that reason, if it is taken directly from the storehouse, then it would be permissible. Paragraph 26. In localities where the practice is to put wine into brine pickle, then it is forbidden. However, if the price of wine is higher than the price of brine pickle, it is permitted because we're not afraid that they would mix wine into it. This ruling applies in all similar cases where the fear is present that the non-Jew might have added forbidden matter to food, since no one would add an expensive ingredient to a cheap cheap substance, because he would incur a loss thereby, while he would add a cheap ingredient to an expensive substance, since he would profit thereby. So in other words, the rule of thumb here is, whatever we're afraid of, the non-Jew might be doing by mixing non-kosher food, we have to determine if that would have him lose any money thereby, then it would be permissible. If he makes a profit, then it would be forbidden, because that would substantiate our fears. A minor who eats one of the forbidden foods or performs work on the Shabbos, on the Sabbath, the courts are under no obligation to compel him to stop since he is not a mature person and does not have yet the intelligence to be responsible for his actions. When does that apply when he does it on his own? But to actually feed him with such food, that is forbidden. Even if the prohibition is only of rabbinical nature. Likewise, it is forbidden to accustom the child to desecrate the Sabbath and the festivals, even in such things that are only prohibited because of rabbinical laws, because they are contrary to the spirit of of the rest required on Shabbos. Rabbinical prohibitions of the Sabbath are referred to as Shavus. 
the court is under no obligation to compel a minor to desist from such matters, it is nevertheless incumbent upon his father to reprove him and make him refrain in order to train him in holiness and avoidance of sin, as it is stated in the book of Proverbs, Train up a child in the way he should go, etc. Paragraph 29. The rabbis prohibited eating food, drinking beverages that is revolting to most people. For example, food and drink contaminated with vomit, excrement, or putrid secretion and the like. Likewise, the rabbis also prohibited eating, eating and drinking out of filthy utensils which offend against one's natural uh, attitude of being fastidious. For example, utensils used in a bathroom, glass vessels used by barber surgeons for bloodletting, and anything similar to that. Similarly, the rabbis prohibited eating with grimy and dirty hands or upon a soiled tablecloth, since all these things are included in the verse, the book of Leviticus, you shall not make yourselves abominable. And one who does eat such revolting foods is liable to rabbinical flogging prescribed even though this is taken from the Torah nevertheless there is no lashes given by the authority of the Torah because it's considered to be lav shebeklolos a negative commandment that comprises many different prohibitions and there's a rule that one does not get the flogging biblical flogging for a violation of that type of a prohibition but rabbinical flogging would be administered to this person Allah Lamed Aleph paragraph 31 it is likewise forbidden to delay the normal evacuation of one's large or small orifices, and he who does so is counted among those who make themselves abominable. The Ramah continues, Moreover, that's besides the terrible diseases that a person would bring upon himself, which would endanger the person's life. A person should therefore accustom himself to bowel movements at regular intervals so that he might he would not make himself offensive in the presence of people, nor render himself abominable. Paragraph thirty two in the final paragraph of this chapter. Indeed, he who is very scrupulous in these matters gains exceeding holiness and purity for himself and purges his soul for the sake of the Holy One, blessed be he, as it is stated in the book of Leviticus, you shall therefore sanctify yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. The Rambam concludes this chapter as well as the entire section 
of Hilchos Machalos Asuros, the laws concerning forbidden foods, with the following statement, Berich Rachmana Desayan Khan. Blessed is the merciful one who has helped us from the beginning to this point. And this concludes the section of Hilchos Machalos Asuros, laws concerning forbidden foods.